Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Matt as well. We've got a few of them around. In fact, one of our visitors showed up today. His name is Matt, so the collection is growing. Um, if you are new and we haven't met yet, I would be grateful if you could introduce yourself to me after the service. I'd love to get to know you, and I'm just grateful that you're here uh, this morning. Uh, we have been going through Psalm 23, and we've come to the last verse of this, of this uh, famous poem uh, known throughout the ages and around the world, Psalm 23. And one of the reasons that God gave us Psalm 23 is to grow us in biblical confidence. But what do you do when you wake up tomorrow morning and you are filled with anger, despair, and fear? What do you do? How do you deal with the negative emotions that seem to replace your confidence, your peace, and your joy? Well, today we're going to look at this final verse in Psalm 23. In verse 6, it says this, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I want to use this verse, this passage from Psalm 23, as kind of a springboard uh, to some of the other psalms to answer a question you might have. If you've been listening for the last few weeks to me talking about confidence, and you're down to earth, you're not going to take empty platitudes, you've been going through the ringer right now, and you're hearing about the confidence that is available to us in the Lord, and you will probably, if that's you, you probably asked a question that looks something like this. Confidence? Are you serious? But what do I do about all of my anger, depression, and fear? That's a good question. It's good to test these things. Now, I don't think that I can fix all of that for you, but I do think that I can point you in the right direction. We see five things that the Psalms call us to. And if you're taking notes using the handout in your bulletin, the first one is this. Clarify your primary purpose. That sounds generic enough, but let me explain that. I, I, I wanna ask you a question that helped me get uh, better clarity this week as recently as yesterday afternoon and this morning. And the question is this. When you're angry, when you're down, or when you're afraid, what is it in that moment that you want? What becomes your goal when you find yourself angry, down, or afraid? Well, if you're anything like me, you want to change the way that you feel, right? And the goal is to feel better. But that's the wrong purpose. That's the first thing we go to. That is the, we're inclined to make that our primary goal, our primary purpose. But in that moment, that is the wrong purpose. That purpose puts me at the center and everything else and everyone else, including God, serves to make me feel better. We might not think that consciously, but subconsciously, that's exactly what's going on. I needed to hear that this morning and yesterday. 
What's David's purpose? What do we see over and over and over again, especially in Psalm 23? David's purpose is his highest purpose. What's first and foremost on his mind is intimacy with God. Psalm 23, yes, it's a psalm about confidence, but attaining confidence and good feelings that, that confidence may bring is not David's purpose. It's the fruit of his purpose. First and foremost, his purpose is a close relationship with God. And we see that all throughout Psalm 23. In verse 1 and 2, the the declaration of of confidence is, I shall not want, I shall be content. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd, and he is all I want, and he is all I need. In verses 3 and 4, his declaration of confidence is, I shall not fear. Why? Because you are with me. In verse 5, the declaration of confidence is, and I shall triumph. Why? Because you prepare and you anoint. You, O Lord, are my victory. And then finally here in verse 6, we see the high point. We see the goal. We see the, the purpose for which all of David's life has been heading. And what is it? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That... That is the fulfillment of his life's purpose, to live in the Lord's presence and experience closeness with the Lord forever. So let me ask you, is that right there your purpose in life? Is that your purpose? I'm not asking if if you're living consistently with that purpose. I'm simply asking, is that your your purpose? And you know what? For some of you, it might not be right now. And I got to tell you, I am so glad that you are here. I think this discussion can help you think through the questions you might have about the main message of Christianity. Most of you here may say yes. You know what? I know I'm not consistent, but I know that's my purpose. So if that's your purpose, what's that mean for your negative emotions? What's that mean for your negative emotions of maybe anger or fear or despair? It means that our purpose is not to feel better, but to know God better. And instead of using God to meet our longings, we use our longings to meet God. Do you see the difference? Instead of using God to improve your experience in life, use your experience of life as a pathway to God. So often Christianity is reduced to using God as a means to an end, as opposed to God being both the means and the end. So many people want to use God to get something that they really want. That will leave you crashed and burned. It will rip you off. You'll be disillusioned. You you will just totally, completely give up on God if that's all God is to you. Our greatest purpose, whether you're going through it or everything's going smoothly, your greatest purpose is to know God and to be close to God and know that he delights in you and that he loves you and he is with you and he is for you and nothing can separate you from his love. 
instead of anger, despair, and fear leading you away from God, which happens so often when I see people just walk away, you know, because they're filled with anger, despair, and fear, drives them away of God. If your highest purpose is closeness with God, then anger, despair, and fear lead you to God and lead you closer to God. It is a world of difference, and we got to be aware of the difference. Now, what's amazing, instead of anger, despair, and fear crushing you, anger, despair, and fear serve your greatest purpose now. And they drive you closer to God. Now, it's not easy. We don't just drift into that mindset. We're too self-centered for that. So we need each other. That's why we need to live in community. That's why after the service, we want to encourage people to, to, I don't know, go down to the taco shop, get your burrito or whatever, come back, we'll hang out in the cafe and, and have lunch together. That's, that's why we, we do, you know, outings, women have their events, and the, like the guys, they're, they're going to get together and throw axes at each other. <laughs> and, and it's not just to have a good time. But when we're hanging out and having fun together and we get to know each other a little bit easier, then it's a little bit easier and a little bit natural to have gospel conversations with each other and then challenge each other because you know that you like each other and love each other and you encourage each other and you remind each other of how the wrong purpose, which is feeling better, pulls us away from our greatest purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. We need each other for that. So that's the first step. Second step. Express your longings to God. You know what? Most of us do whatever it is that we can to avoid feeling unpleasant, right? And do everything we can to feel better. We pretend, we deny, we, we distort, we distract. We do everything we can to avoid feeling unpleasant. We prefer sometimes to hold on to the myth that life is basically safe and predictable and people, especially like you, people like you and people like me, that we're basically good. But our anger, our despair, and our fear destroy that myth, Right? When, when we feel anger, despair, and fear, they reveal that we live in a world filled with sin and that we too are sinners. That's what it reveals. And that can be a good thing. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. It's like the red dashboard light uh, in your car. It lets you know that something's wrong and something needs to get fixed. When your red dashboard light comes on, your, your response isn't, oh, I'm such a loser. No, oh, man, I'm glad I know something's wrong. Now we can fix it. And so that's what like, feelings like anger, despair, and fear do. They let you know that, that something's not, not, not right, right? They, they reveal there's, that there's some sin in our heart. It, it can give us a diagnosis, a diagnosis of what is wrong with us so that we can deal with it for what it is. In our last verse here in verse 6, David speaks of his absolute confidence of living with God forever when he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But let me tell you something. He didn't always feel that way. There were plenty of times 
where David was filled with the fear of death. See, King David was not a stoic. He wasn't trying to be like, you know, John Wayne or something like that. He wore his heart on his sleeve. He didn't try to hide his fear from God. In Psalm 30, he says to God, listen, what prophet, he's crying out, what prophet is there in my death if I go down in the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your, your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Don't get the idea that Psalm 23 is a more mature David having outgrown his fear of death. Not at all. Because the rest of this Psalm 30 is also filled with verses of celebration of God's salvation. And a lot of Psalms are a mix of salvation and lament. And that reminds us that our times of joy and sorrow are mixed throughout life. And so it calls us to be honest with God, be down to earth with David, and tell all of it to God because he cares for you. This enables us to enter a closer relationship with God. Our emotions, even our painful ones, even the dark ones, provide a path that lead us to experience God. They open the door to a, a wrestling with God that doesn't simply change our emotions, but it changes us. Ultimately, ultimately, feeling and pondering and expressing our longings to God will lead us to the joy of worship. Nothing compares to that. Nothing at all. And we see that over and over and over with David. Third. Third step. Redirect your longings. Now, before I get into this, I want to clarify something real quickly. Some of you may have a physiological or psychological condition uh, that affects your state of mind, and I cannot imagine how difficult that is. And I know that God's common grace provides doctors who might be able to, to help you with treatment, so I'm not encouraging you to stop whatever treatment the doctor has given you or make you feel guilty for getting treatment. I'm not, I'm not doing that. We are a holistic people, and I'm not addressing the psychological, the physiological. I'm only addressing the spiritual at this point and something we all have to do. So spiritually speaking, beneath our anger, beneath our despair, Beneath our fear are deep, unfulfilled longings. You got to see what's going on below those emotions. For example, if we're filled with fear, it's because that we want, um, that we long for so deeply, it got blocked. And if we're filled with fear, it's because something we long for so deeply is uncertain. And if we're filled with despair, it's because something we long for so deeply has become impossible. So the problem, here's the problem. The problem, the diagnosis here, is that we are looking to things to meet our deep longings that can be blocked, made uncertain, and become impossible. And we do it over and over and over again. And they always rip us off and let us down. But we keep doing it. 
We look to our own skills and our abilities for our strength. We look to people or, or money for our security. We look to achievements and approval for our significance. And all of those things will let you down. And yet we still go to those for our security and our significance. What is it that we're really longing for? What is it that gives us true strength and security and significance? David tells us, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this, this psalm, all the psalms call us to redirect our longings. For example, in Psalm 27, we, there is fear. The fear of violence and death being rejected, abandoned, criticized. And beneath that fear are deep longings for strength, security, and significance. But then the psalmist, well, he, he, he realizes that what he longs for cannot be fulfilled by himself or anyone else other than God himself. And so he's, he says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Do you see what happened there? He redirected his longings. Another example, Psalm 42. There's despair. <laughs> David says, my tears have been my food day and night. That's despair. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Why do I go on mourning? He knows what he longs for. And so he cries out, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He redirected his longings. And one more, Psalm 73. There's anger now. The anger of envy because people less deserving have something that I want. The wicked are prospering while I'm getting a raw deal. What good is it to obey God to try to get a good life? He's angry. But then he says, I entered into God's presence and reality sink in. And he redirects his longing. And he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What we need to see here is that these great declarations of a longing for God comes in the midst of anger, in the midst of despair, in the midst of fear. Those emotions reveal our underlying longings that cannot be met in anything or anyone but God alone. Now, I can't guarantee you that you'll suddenly feel better. But then that's not the purpose, is it? We got to get that. We re redirect our longings not because it works, but because it's the only thing that makes sense and it opens a pathway to close, a closer relationship with God. Do you see that? 
All right, fourth step. I want to camp out on this one a little bit. If you're taking notes, fourth step is remember God's covenant kindness. The first part of our verse for today says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, no one, as long as I've been alive, has ever mistaken me for a Hebrew scholar. No one. Maybe a bouncer or a truck driver, but not a Hebrew scholar. But I'm told that those who are Hebrew scholars, that the word translated mercy is the Hebrew word chesed, a special word that refers to God's mercy or kindness in connection to his covenant. And what's a covenant? A covenant is a binding relationship between two or more people based on promises, like marriage between a husband and a wife. God entered a covenant, a binding relationship with his people based on promises. And there's a beautiful picture in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. At that point, King Saul had died. David had become king. Sometime later, David asks his official, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, said covenant kindness? Now normally in, in the ancient Near East, when a king took the throne, he would kill everybody in the family of the previous king to eliminate any threat of an overthrow. And remember, Saul hated David, tried to murder him. That became Saul's goal in life. But instead, David wants to show said. Why would David want to show kindness to any relative of Saul? You know, David's question, I didn't say all of it. All of his question reads this way. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And who was Jonathan? You remember? Jonathan was Saul's son and David's best friend. And David and Jonathan entered a covenant of friendship. Part of their covenant is recorded in 1 Samuel 20. And Jonathan says to David, show me, David, unfailing kindness has said like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness your has said from my family not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth now David is king and he remembers his friend Jonathan who had been killed in battle with the Philistines and he remembers their covenant they made it with each other and so that's why he asked are there any of his family left to whom I can show has said for Jonathan's sake? His officials discover there's still a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. You all remember Mephibosheth? Can you all say Mephibosheth? Well, he was five years old when his father Jonathan and his grandfather King Saul were killed in battle. The woman who was caring for Mephibosheth knew that God had chosen David to be king. And when King Saul died, she figured that the first thing King David was going to do was, when he takes over the throne is to eliminate any threats to the throne. That meant Mephibosheth was in danger. 
And so she grabs him up and, and runs for safety. And in a rush, a, her- a horrible, terrible accident happens. Mephibosheth gets hurt, and he becomes crippled in both feet. Now Mephibosheth is living in a town on the east side of Jordan called Lodabar, which means no pasture, wilderness, wasteland. He's a grown man now with his own son, but he's been hiding, hiding out there because he fears David, fears for his life. David sins for him. Mephibosheth is brought before the king, and he bows down before David, and no doubt his heart is racing, his body's shaking, his life is passing before his eyes, and he's thinking, this is it, this is the end, I'm dead. But King David says, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And he must have been thinking, I'm sorry, what? David says, I will restore you. I will restore you to all the land that belongs to your grandfather, Saul. That was massive, massive wealth, right? He just won the lottery. More than that. More than that, this is, this is an inheritance in the land of Israel, the promised land of God. And more than that, David says, and you will always eat at my table. Now he's the king's guest for breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the king's table for the rest of his life. And even more than that, Mephibosheth cut, eats at David's table, and, and the text says, like he's one of the king's own sons. <laughs> Mephibosheth woke up that morning as an orphan in a hole called No Pasture, and that night he dined in the palace in Jerusalem as an adopted son of the king. And that all just seems too good to be true. So Mephibosheth says, Who am I that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dog to an Old Testament Hebrew was an unclean animal, a derogatory term for people who were despised and rejected and had no place in the kingdom of God. So Mephibosheth is saying, I'm unworthy. But the story ends with these words. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. The end. That seems like a weird way to end the story, doesn't it? Why does it end that way? The reason it ends that way is because that's the punchline. That's the whole point of the whole story. The king's kindness, in spite of Mephibosheth's condition, since he was crippled in both feet, Mephibosheth could not possibly repay David as a servant or a soldier. So there was absolutely no way that David was going to benefit from this act of kindness, but still he gives Mephibosheth the highest honor and privilege possible. He dines with the king as the king's son forever. can't believe I haven't messed up his name yet. (laughs) Listen, when you struggle with anger, and you will, when you struggle with despair, and you will, and when you struggle with fear, and you will, I want us to remember this story. 
this picture of the covenant kindness that God shows towards his people. His kindness, despite our unworthiness, despite our helplessness. And like Mephibosheth, you and I are totally undeserving of God's kindness. Anything good in my life is just a gift. But when I struggle, there is, maybe not always consciously, but, but subconsciously, there's an underlying assumption that I deserve something more. That I'm entitled to something. That these bad things should not be happening to, to me and my family. Haven't I done enough to earn God's favor? But I remember, I get perspective when I remember that I was God's enemy, that I was, I was worthy of death, that I was, I was living apart from him in a, in a spiritual wasteland. I was a, a spiritually crippled, dead dog. But God overwhelmed me with his covenant kindness. He not only spares my life from destruction and he not only gives me eternal inheritance, but he seats me at his table to dine with him as his son. And the apostle John, basking in God's covenant kindness, says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. We don't experience this to the fullest in this life, but we get glimpses and we get previews. We will continue to struggle with the pain and the heartache of living in Lodabar. But one day we will. One day we will experience this in its fullness. It's guaranteed. You can bank on it. And you know why? Because it's all for the sake of another. You know, I know some of you sense your, your deep unworthiness and, 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 and in despair you think, you know what, this cannot be true of me. It might be true of, of these other people, but not me. And you know what, I'm sure Mephibosheth struggled with that too. Maybe he sat down to eat at the king's table and he said to himself, you know what, I'm not worthy of being this close to the king. Why should I be given so much honor? But then he needs to remember I'm not here for my own sake. I'm here for the sake of another, for my father, for Jonathan's sake. You and I must never forget that we sit at our king's table as adopted sons and adopted daughters, not for our own sake, but for the sake of another. God shows kindness to us now and forever for the sake of Jesus. That's good news because that means it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. The truth is, all that you long for and far more than you could ever imagine or dare to hope for, strength and security and significance, your eternal salvation, your heavenly inheritance, the status of God's beloved child, an intimate relationship with the king and dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. All of that is grounded in the irrevocable fact 
that God has sealed by his precious blood of his son, a covenant of friendship that takes in anyone who trusts in Christ to protect you and keep you throughout this life and for all eternity in the next. That's why Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took the cup, the cup that overflows, and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And I'll close with this. Finally, when we remember God's covenant kindness to us, it will then lead us to show kindness to others. It's the only response that makes any sense. It is stupid not to. It's, it, it's, it's a lack of logic, a lack of thinking, a lack of connecting the dots. If you have been, uh, the question for us to evaluate our lives and hearts is, have you been showing undeserved kindness to people in your life? Or are you always kind of like writing a negative Yelp review in your mind of this person and that person and this person? Must your love be deserved? Must your love be earned? Must your love be paid back? If not, what do you do if you haven't been shown undeserved kindness? Well, you confess your sin to King Jesus. You receive his forgiveness, his love, his grace, his covenant kindness. That's what you do. And if you know Jesus, then you'll know his kindness. And if you know his kindness, you will show God's kindness. You know, there's a connection between Psalm 23 and, and the story of Mephibosheth, the king's table, the king's house, the king's said. In Psalm 23, David is the guest. In the story of Mephibosheth, David is the king. This connection is not coincidental because if you know God's kindness, you will show God's kindness. And when you show God's kindness, you will know God's kindness even more. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?